0: Welcome everyone uh, to our Wednesday night uh, Bible study. Uh, So I am going to have to start tonight with an apology. Um, When I first started uh, the study about 10 weeks ago in relevant cultural topics, uh, I knew when I started that there were five things that I wanted to cover. I wanted to cover truth, uh, race, abortion, gender, and sexuality. Those were the five things that I wanted to cover. And uh, we did that, and we did it in about eight weeks, and um, last week we went an extra week, and I answered a couple questions about marriage, and uh, we talked about progressive Christianity, and I told you last week that we would go at least one more week, maybe even two, and uh, I intended to do that, and so Thursday morning I got up, got my coffee, sat down in front of my computer, and within two hours I knew it was over. I just knew. I, I can't tell you how I knew, but I just knew, okay, we're done. Uh, I had some other things on my mind. People had suggested other topics, and I thought I would do them, but uh, it, it just didn't work out. And so within a couple hours, I knew we were done. Within two more hours, I knew where we would go uh, tonight. So. Uh, like I said, I, I apologize. I, I certainly didn't mean to do a bait and switch on you uh, and tell you we were going to do it and then get you here and we didn't do it. That wasn't my intention. Also, there were some of you who asked me questions, um, and I know you were hoping that I would cover those. Uh, I'm not going to publicly, but please, please, if you've got questions about uh, some of the things, uh, like I know a couple of you came up to me, please look me up. Please find me. We'll sit down. And I'll answer all of those questions for you individually. But it just wasn't meant to be uh, to move forward. So tonight, we are going to uh, uh, embark on a new study. Now, this is a study that I have wanted to do for a long, long time. It's been on my bucket list. And yes, I know that most people's bucket list is places they want to go. My bucket list is things I want to teach. I have a bucket list, and this has been one of the things on my bucket list. In fact, I bought this book about four years ago uh, to do this study. Um, I bought this book specifically for this study. It was about four years ago, and I intended to do it, and life just happened, and other things came up, and I just never got to do it. But I somehow, last Thursday, I knew that this was the right time, especially coming out of the relevant cultural topics where we focus so much on truth. uh, This is going to bring us face-to-face, this study, with truth. Now, I will tell you one thing about this study. It is 180 degrees different from the other one. The one we just got out of was kind of outward-facing, right? We were looking at culture. We were looking outside the church. This one is going to turn right around, and it's going to be looking right here. It's got nothing to do with what's going on out there. It's got everything to do with what's going on inside you and me. So I'm excited about it. Uh, In fact, (laughs) I was thinking today, I feel exactly like I did the first time I started Romans. I was terrified um, because I knew there were things in Romans I didn't understand. And I knew that I was going to have to come to understand them. And once you do, guess what? You're responsible for it. And there's things in this study I don't understand, but I will. And I know that once I understand them, I've got to apply them. And that, it is, I'm excited, but there's also some fear and trepidation. So here's the question that we're going to be answering over the next few months. I think this will take about six months. I'm not certain. Uh, the the relevant cultural topics took two months. I think this will take six. Uh, again, maybe less, maybe more. But here's the topic not the topic necessarily, but here's this intriguing question that I asked myself years ago. If God preached a sermon, what would He say? You know, every Sunday here at River of Life, somebody preaches a sermon. We've got about six different uh, people, uh, men that preach here at at River of Life, and uh, every Sunday somebody's preaching, and whoever preaches has to prepare a message. You know, sometimes I preach, and and when I do, you know, you got to come up with a topic. And then you got to think about your audience. You've got to think about who are you trying to reach. Are you talking to believers? Are you talking to unbelievers? What's the, what are you trying to get across? What's your point? All of those things go into a sermon. But what if God preached a sermon? What would he say? What would be his point? What would be his theme? What would be his topic? Who would he talk to? Would he be talking to unbelievers? Or would he be talking to Believers. Now, here's the thing. We don't really have to ask this question because God did preach a sermon. And that sermon we know as the Sermon on the Mount. So, what we're going to do for the next few months is we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. We're going to go look specifically at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, tonight we're just going to get into an introduction. I'm going to show you a few general things, and then next week we'll walk into it and begin to look at the sermon itself and what uh, Jesus says. But tonight, we're going to just start to focus on some introduction. Now, I'm sure that most everybody here, you're either probably very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, or you're at least somewhat familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It is, I'm 100% sure, it is the most well-known, and it is the most frequently quoted portion of the Bible. In fact, I just grabbed a few, uh, a few statements out of the sermon. And these are things that are, for, for, for Christians especially, we know all these very well. Statements like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge not that you be not judged. Turn the other cheek. Seek and you will find. I mean, these are just, when it comes to the Bible, these are like famous. But they're not only famous among Christians they're well-known even outside the church. I guarantee you, if you went up to one of the uh, uh, Winn-Dixie or Publix and you stopped 100 people and you said, what does turn the other cheek mean? I guarantee you 95% of them would know what that means. That's, that's actually, it's, it's so famous, it's made its way into our vernacular in the English language. So Christians, uh, uh, we love this sermon, but it's not just us. Liberal Christians love it. Progressive Christians love it. Even atheists love it. I mean, they will. You go to an atheist and ask an atheist to quote one scripture, just one. I guarantee you, they'll probably say, Judge not that you be not judged. They love that scripture. And that's right out of the Sermon on the Mount. So it is incredibly well known. It is also the most least understood portion of scripture and, without a doubt, the least obeyed. It's the least understood, and it is, without a doubt, the least obeyed, certainly outside the church and unfortunately within the church as well. Jesus ascends the mountain and he preaches a sermon that is world-changing and it's so familiar to us today, I don't think we even hear it anymore. You know that can happen, right? It's like somebody living by railroad tracks, right? And you go over to their house and you can't even hear yourself think because of all the noise, but they, they don't even notice it anymore. It's just gotten familiar. They've gotten used to it. I guess that's my question. Have we gotten so used to the Sermon on the Mount that we actually don't even hear it anymore? Now, the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect picture of what a Christian should look like under the rule of God. It's a perfect picture of what a Christian should look like. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to get into the details, the characteristics of a Christian in the kingdom of God. But tonight, if I could just find one word to explain what a Christian should look like under the rule of God, I would use this word different. Wouldn't you agree? Shouldn't a Christian be different from someone who is not a Christian? Shouldn't those in the kingdom be different from those outside the kingdom? Those inside the church be um, different from those outside the church? So how is it that we live in an age where people inside the church pretty much look exactly like people outside the church? Would you disagree with that? I mean, for the most part, people inside the walls of our churches look exactly like people outside the walls of our churches. I don't think it's an overstatement. If I could come up with one word to describe the life of the modern church, I would say it's superficial. That word means shallow. The commands of Scripture, sometimes, for whatever reason, are ignored or are or, or not taken seriously by people who call themselves Christians. The divorce rate inside the church by people who call themselves Christians is virtually the same as the divorce rate outside the church. People are living together outside of marriage outside the church, and guess what? People are doing it inside the church, and they call themselves citizens of the king. How's that possible? How are we just ignoring what the Bible says or not taking seriously what the Bible says? Now, listen, I don't want to put anybody under the law. We studied in Romans 6 a few weeks ago. Paul told us uh, we are no longer under the law. The law, the rules, the, 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 the regulations, they, they no longer control us. They certainly don't, can't condemn us. Now, they don't judge us. But folks, come on, we're meant to live by it, right? Not only to live by it, but to go above it. It doesn't condemn us or judge us, but it doesn't excuse us either. Romans 6.22, Paul said this, But now that you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification. That's holiness. That's being different. If you really are in the kingdom of God, you should be different. Here's the question that I'm going to ask tonight. I'll probably ask this uh, uh, many more times over the next few weeks. And that is this. Do we take the plain teaching of Jesus Christ seriously? I'm not talking about deep theology. I'm just talking about plain, simple commands of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Do we take them seriously? Do I take them seriously? Do you? Listen, there is no better way to answer that question than to come face-to-face with the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're going to do. We're just going to come face-to-face with it. We're going to look at these commands, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, do I take it seriously? So tonight, I just want to give you a brief overview. Now, anytime you have a sermon, as as I mentioned earlier, here on, uh, on Sunday, somebody is going to preach, and we have different... Uh, men that get up and preach. So every sermon has a, a preacher. So who is the preacher on the Sermon on the Mount? Now, I mentioned earlier that everybody seems to love the Sermon on the Mount. For example, I, as I said, you can take liberal Christians or progressive Christians or even, even atheists, and they'll say, man, look at, those, look at those commands right there. Blessed are the peacemakers whatever you wish others to do to you make sure you do that to them judge not that you be not judged love your enemies turn the other cheek everybody loves those commands even people outside the church why because they see jesus as simply a human teacher of ethics they see him like a mahatma gandhi they see him like a confucius they just see him as a quote good teacher or great teacher but they don't see Him as who He is. This is why C.S. Lewis, by the way, in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. He said, I'm trying to here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about Him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. Because a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You see, Jesus doesn't give us the option of just saying he's a great teacher. He claims to be more. I'm going to give you just four examples. This is all, by the way, from the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not even going to step outside the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not God's account. On my account. I mean, who does this man think he is? Look at Matthew 5.17 Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I didn't even come to confirm them. I came to fulfill them. In other words, you know that law thing, that Moses thing, that Old Testament thing? Yeah, that was all about me. I'm the end game. I mean, can you imagine somebody saying that? How about this one, Matthew 5, 27 and 28? You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. By the way, that was said in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. He says, you've heard it said in in the law, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, I say. In other words, hey, I got revelation beyond that. I got something to say above that. I mean, who says that kind of stuff? And then, of course, at the very end of the sermon, Matthew seven twenty-one to 23, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, on that day many will call me Lord. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, you see what he's saying? He says, I'm your judge. On that last day, I will stand. And, and you're either in or out, and I'll make that judgment. That's me. So let me tell you, the preacher here of this sermon is not just a good human teacher. This is the Lord of glory. This is the fulfiller of history. This is the, the judge of the universe that has ascended a mountain. And he's going to preach a sermon. Now, I was thinking this week <clears throat> that when a preacher gets up to preach, everybody has a style, right? Everybody has a style. I remember a friend of mine years ago, he came come out of an old holiness Pentecostal background. And when he preached, first thing he'd do is he'd get his handkerchief out. Y'all ever seen anybody do that? He'd get his handkerchief out and then he would, he'd preach and buddy, he'd come by and he'd, he'd wipe his brow and he'd set it down, Right? And then when he really got going, he'd just pick it up and carry it with him and he'd wipe. That was his style, right? He'd seen somebody do that and he thought, man, this is cool. So I'm going to do that, right? But even here, everybody has a style. Pastor Henry is a, is a, has a different style than Chuck, than Al, than, than Brother Bill or myself. Everybody's got a style. What about Jesus? What, what is his style? It may surprise you to learn. And this is really important. In fact, this is one of the reasons that most people so misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount. It's because they don't understand style. It turns out that the Sermon on the Mount has a lot in common with what we call Old Testament wisdom literature. So I'm talking about books like Psalms and Proverbs and and Ecclesiastes. And of all those books, it has more in common, believe it or not, with the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs, if you've ever read it, is a book of Hebrew poetry. It's actually biblical poetry. Now, that may surprise some of you because when we think of poetry, we think of rhyming words, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, blah, 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 right? We think of that kind of poetry, but that's not how biblical poetry works. What biblical poetry does is it takes two lines or two ideas and plays them off of one another. In fact, there's a technical term for it. It's called parallelism. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is Proverbs 12:28. It says this, In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. By the way, that's called synonymous parallelism. And you can tell by the name, the first line and the second line basically say the exact same thing, just in a different way. But there's something about it, it it's, it's memorable. It's just memorable. I don't know what it is, but it helps you remember. Let me give you another one. He, uh, Proverbs ten twelve: Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. That's called antithetical parallelism, which is the second line contrasts the first line. There's actually seven different types. But this is what's called poetry in the Old Testament. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up for a couple reasons. Number one, it's beautiful when you really understand what they're doing. It's also, like I said, very memorable. And you see it all throughout. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's parallelism. And it makes it so memorable, so easy to to remember. So that's one of the things. By the way, the neat thing about it is if you rhyme words... In poetry, that doesn't translate well into other language. This translates perfectly into other languages. So God created this poetry that's beautiful, it's easy to remember, and it translates well into other languages. But here's why it's important to me and you. Because Jesus is going to make generous use of this style in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll use it all the time. For example, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's poetry. That's what's called parallelism. Or how about this one? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw away. Y'all see the parallel? He's saying the same thing. He's just doing it in a different way. So he uses this. That's his style. He uses it all throughout the sermon. Now the Jews, they understood this completely. They were very, very familiar with this style. We're not. We're not. So we're, if we're not careful, we take it literally, but that's not how he meant it at all. And here's another thing. Parallelism is poetry. And what you have to remember about poetry is that the language of poetry is imagery. In other words, Poetry is not meant to feed your intellect. It's meant to stir your emotions. It's not, it's not to, trying to get you up here. It's trying to paint a picture that you cannot forget. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have to interpret it like that. Listen, if you interpret the Sermon on the Mount literally, you'll cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, and give all your money away. It's not meant to be interpreted that way. And you've got to understand that. So it's it's incredibly important going in that we know that because then we can understand what he's trying to get across uh, to us. So that is the style that he's going to use. Now, this is the one thing that interests me. What's his topic? What's his theme? If God preached a sermon, what's he going to talk about? What, what's the one thing that he's going to... Focus on, well, the events leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, which start in Matthew chapter five. Um, uh, Matthew uh, kind of describes these events in chapters three and four. Now, in chapter three, he introduces this guy called John the Baptist, and we all know John the Baptist, right? He's the—he's wearing camel hair clothes, he's eating uh, locust and wild honey, he's living out in the desert, he's like this crazy man. But he's got one message, and he just will not shut up. And this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. He just won't shut up. He just keeps... That's all he talks about. It's all he talks about. Well, one day, he gets thrown in prison by King Herod. And the reason he got thrown in prison is because King Herod married his brother's, his brother's wife which was against the Mosaic law, and and John the Baptist wouldn't let it go. I don't know if he just got out in front of the castle and just said, you're going to hell, Herod. I don't know what he said, but somehow or another, he just called the guy out, right? And Herod's wife, she's like, you you got to get rid of this guy. So they throw him in in jail. By the way, he'll never come out of that that dungeon. In fact, he don't come out uh, with his head, put it that way. When he comes out, his head will be separated from his body. But in Matthew chapter 4, it says this. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. Matthew four seventeen says this. And from that time, talking about the arrest of John, Jesus began to preach. Now, John was the forerunner, right? He was making the way for Jesus, and what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As soon as he arrests, Jesus begins to preach. Evidently, he hadn't preached until that point. He begins his public ministry, and what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message does not change, it's the exact same message that John had been preaching. Matthew 4.23 says this, "...Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease." There's his ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing. And what's he preaching about? The good news of the kingdom. Matthew is introducing a theme here in the early part of his gospel that will wind its way through his entire uh, book, and that is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount, you might be curious is one of five discourses in the book of Matthew. And you can, you can find them in Matthew seven twenty eight, which is a Sermon on the Mount, again in chapter 11, 13, 19, and 26. And you can recognize them because they always end with these words when, Jen, when Jesus had finished these words. So here's what you and I need to know. In every one of those discourses, one way or another, Jesus' topic or theme is exactly the same, and that is the kingdom of heaven that's his topic. That was the great burden of John the Baptist's ministry, and that was the great burden of Jesus's ministry, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, by the way, and I'm going to use these terms interchangeably, uh, Matthew always calls it the kingdom of heaven. Some of the other gospels call it the kingdom of God. For example, Luke does this, but they mean exactly the same thing. It isn't like, God's got a kingdom over here that he calls the kingdom of God, and he's got another kingdom over here that he calls the kingdom of heaven. He's got one kingdom, right? So I, you'll hear me sometimes call it the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven, but they're exact same thing. Now listen to me. The word translated kingdom has two elements. In order to have a kingdom, you've got to have two things. Number one, you need a king, and then you need an area or a realm that that king rules over. Well, the king, of course, is God or Christ, And the king, what is his realm? Well, in one sense, we all know that God sovereignly rules over everything. It's his creation. So he rules over the entire universe, every atom, every molecule, every particle. But that is not the kingdom that's in focus here. The kingdom that's in focus here is the kingdom that is in this room right now. It's the kingdom of God among men. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is here. That's what the focus is. It's not the kingdom that's going to exist sometime in the future when, when the new heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kingdom of God as it is right now. Now listen, we've heard these words and phrases so much, but you've got to understand, the first people that heard that, that it was just incredible because Jesus is saying, You know the kingdom that you've been hoping for, and praying for, and longing for, it's here. And by the way, when the kingdom is here, that means the king is here. The king has walked onto the stage. The kingdom of God is here. So here you've got the king of the universe, ascends a mountain, sits down and preaches a sermon about his kingdom. This is what my kingdom looks like. Let me tell you what it's not. And this is very important, okay? It's not a message describing what you must do to get into the kingdom. Somebody here needs to hear this. When you read Matthew 5... And I would encourage you to... Listen, you can read it in 15 minutes. Chapter 5, 6, and 7. 15, 20 minutes at the most. You can read the whole sermon. And what I want you to understand is it's not telling you how to get into the kingdom. Now... Every kingdom has a king, and every kingdom has subjects, or citizens. And in the sermon, right at the very beginning, Jesus paints a picture of the kind of people who populate his kingdom. And we know these as the Beatitudes. Right off the bat, he talks about the citizens of the kingdom. By the way, the Beatitudes comes from the uh, Latin word beatus, which just means blessing, or, or blissful, or happy. It's a a beautiful, poetic way of describing the character traits of a citizen of the kingdom of God. But we have to be very, very clear up front. He's not telling us how to do, do these things and you get in the kingdom. He's saying this is what somebody looks like when they're already in the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is not telling anybody how to get saved. I read this years ago, I thought this was pretty funny. We all know the story of the Philippian jailer, right? Uh, There's an earthquake and he thinks, uh, you know, he gets out a sword. He's going to kill himself because he thinks everybody's escaped. And Paul says, hey, we're right here. And he asked the question that we all hopefully will ask at some point in our life. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul did not say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he said, is it? What did Paul say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus told uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So to get into the kingdom, you have to be born again. You have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's got nothing to do with your actions or your works or your character or any of those things. And this is so important for us to remember as we go through the Sermon on the Mount that a new birth is essential to be in the kingdom of God. You got to keep this in mind because if you don't, you'll, you'll interpret the sermon two ways and both of them is wrong. Some people like progressive Christians and liberal Christians, they'll come to the Sermon on the Mount And they're like fools. They look at it and say, well, anybody can do that. Anybody can turn the other cheek. Anybody can love their enemies. Anybody can judge not. No, they can't. But on the other hand, if you're not careful, you'll come to the Sermon on the Mount and you'll look at it and say, nobody can do that. Nobody can do those things. Yes, you can. There's a group of people in the middle that are called new creations in Christ that are born again, empowered by the Spirit of God, they can do those things. But the new birth is absolutely essential. So let's keep that in mind as we go through. The Sermon on the Mount is not telling us how to get into the kingdom. It's describing people that are already citizens of the kingdom. And here's the second thing it's not. Now listen to me. I cannot read the Sermon on the Mount without feeling guilty. You read it lately? Go home and read it tonight. And I'm telling you, you can't get through it without feeling guilty. But that is not the point. It, it's not designed to produce guilt. Now, you, you're not going to be able to avoid that. Because when you read it and Jesus is describing the character of a Christian and the lifestyle of a Christian, you're going to look at that and think, wow, man, man, I am really messing up here. i I got to do better. You, there, you can't help but feel some sense of guilt, but that's not the point. The point of the sermon is not to produce hopelessness, not to produce despair. It's to set before us a vision of what a Christian is meant to be. That's all it's doing. It's setting a, it's setting a goal. It's setting saying, look, this is what you can do. This is what you can be. This is what you're meant to be. It's challenging us to be different. Remember what I said earlier, shouldn't we as Christians be different? Shouldn't we have a distinct, uh, even a royal lifestyle, fitting for a royal kingdom? But how many of us do? How many of us would say, man, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm different in the way that I need to be? Anytime you preach a sermon, you have a preacher. The preacher has a style, the preacher has a topic, and the preacher has an audience. I can tell you that when I've put sermons together and I step up here, I've always got somebody I want to talk to. It's either going to be believers or it's going to be unbelievers. I'm even I'm trying to encourage believers or build up believers or, or, or I'm trying to call uh, unbelievers to salvation. It's usually one or the other. Who is his audience? Well, you should already know this, but I'll read it for you in Matthew 5, 1 and 2. It says, See in the crowds. He went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, listen, there's no doubt that there was others there. If you go read the end of the sermon, it says that a multitude had gathered. But Let me tell you, he's teaching believers. He's teaching his followers. He's teaching his disciples. His message is for us. That's who it's for. In fact, in Matthew 5, 16, it says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your father. That's not unbelievers. Unbelievers don't have God as their father. It's only children of the kingdom. So this message is for us. Like I said, this last study we, we went through it was enjoyable. We, I enjoyed it. But we were focused on really the culture this is going to be completely focused on you and I. Um, I mentioned earlier a couple more things that I bought this book uh, a while back. This is a book by uh, uh, a preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, he died in 1980. But he preached a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I had read part of it and bought the book, and, and I'll be using it. But he proposed a series of what he called negative tests. And I thought this was real interesting, and this might help us as we go through the sermon. We're going to run into things in this sermon that are going to challenge us. Let me give you an example, Matthew 540. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, that's like saying if anybody sues you for $10,000 and they win, just throw in another ten. And that's what he's saying, right? They, they sued him for his tunic, not his cloak. He said, just throw in your cloak as well and say, here, take it. If anybody sues you for $10,000, then just give them another 10. Now, I'm not even going to ask you what your reaction <laughs> is to that. I'm not going to ask you. But I want to give you the negative test. This is what Dr. Jones said. If we find ourselves arguing was something Jesus said. If our interpretation makes Jesus' statement seem ridiculous, or if we find ourselves regarding a particular command as impossible, if you find yourself arguing with those commands, or you look at that command and you say, man, that is absolutely ridiculous, or you look at that command and you say, that is absolutely impossible, listen, if you criticize the sermon at any point. The problem is with us, not him. We have either something wrong with us inside or our interpretation is completely wrong. But these are the words of Jesus. These are the words. If God could preach a sermon, what would he say? And that's what he chose to say. That's one of the things he chose to say. How are we going to take that into our life and implement it? Are we going to take that seriously? Are we just going to say, you know what, I yeah, I don't know about that one. Finally, I close with this, King and Lord. At the very end of the sermon, Jesus said this, Matthew 7, 24, Everyone then who does hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, again, he's just said some incredible things. And he says, look, you hear these things I just said? Anybody that does them is a wise man. Remember, James says, don't deceive yourself being hearers of the Word and not doers. Jesus doesn't want us to just hear the words of the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to do the words of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus died and gave us the Holy Spirit so that we might be able to do exactly that. Now listen, we may not live it perfectly. In fact, we won't live it perfectly. But guys, we got to try How can we not try? You see, having Christ as our Savior means that we belong to the kingdom of God. And if you belong to the kingdom of God, that means that He is your King and He is your Lord. In fact, you cannot be in the kingdom without Him as your King. There are Christians today who think, I belong to the kingdom, but yet they don't live like He's their King. They don't live like He's their Lord. Listen, if you're in the kingdom, He's your King. And if he's your king, you're in the kingdom. You can't separate those two things. You cannot separate the king and his kingdom. John Calvin said this, the Bible is the scepter by which King Jesus rules his people. Man, I love that. I had to throw that in there. The Bible is the scepter by which King Jesus rules his people. Living the Sermon on the Mount fundamentally means that we submit to the king's authority. It means coming to Him and taking His yoke upon us and and, and learning of Him. And by the way, how do we do that? We do it through Scripture. We do it by picking that Bible up and we read that Bible and we study that Bible and we believe that Bible and we do everything within us to submit to the authority of His Word and His voice. That's why, by the way, one mark of the Christian... One mark of a Christian should be that you love Scripture. And not just love to study it and read it, but you're growing in your obedience to it. I don't understand a Christian that doesn't want to read Scripture or obey Scripture. That's, all, that's hard for me to get. That should be our, because it's showing us that's how he rules over us. And that's how we submit to Him. I started this lesson by asking a question. If God preached a sermon, what would He say? Over the next few weeks, we're going to come face to face with that sermon. We're going to come face to face with the words that He spoke on that day. And here's the question I'm going to ask it again. Will you and I take the plain, simple teaching of Jesus Christ seriously? The challenge in this study is not going to be, it's not like the book of Romans where we had to dive deep and understand this this theology. It's not like that at all. The challenge here is looking at these simple commands, understanding what they're saying, and then saying, will I apply that to my life? Listen, I don't want, and I hope you don't, we don't want River of Life to be a church where everybody on the inside looks like people on the outside. In fact, can I tell you in this day and time what the world needs more than anything are Christians who act like Christians. That's, that's, uh, listen, if we do that, you don't got to send out no tracts. You ain't got to do no evangelistic campaigns. Trust me, they will fill this building to overflowing because they will want what you have. Jesus is going to tell us next week, happy is the one who does this. Happy is the one who does this. Happy is the one. When you got people that are full of joy and happy and, and I mean, listen, it's going to be all over you. The reason it's not all over us is because most of us aren't submitting to the simple commands of the Sermon on the Mount. But that's going to be our challenge in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. And I am, I am so excited about this study. Uh, but God, I, I'm, I just right off the very bat, we need your help. Because there are things in here that's going to challenge us in some ways that we haven't been challenged in a long, long time. And Father, for us to to walk these things out and live these things out, we can't do it on our own power. We're not bold enough. We're not courageous enough. We're not fearless enough. But in the power of your Spirit, we can do what we could never do on our own. So I ask you, Holy Spirit, right now to, to bless this study, to take the Word that goes out on a weekly basis and do what you do and and not let the word just die on the vine, but let it take root and let it begin to bring forth fruit in our lives. And I pray that this church, somehow through our preaching and through our worship and through these Wednesday night studies, that we will become people of the kingdom. That pe- and people will see us and think, man, whatever they got, that's what I want. That's what I got to have. For those in this building whose children are wayward and astray the best thing they can do for their children is to begin to be what a Christian was meant to be. So their children will see that and want that more than anything in this world. God, help us. Help us to be that kind of people at River of Life. And Father, when you do it, when you do it, it'll be obvious to everyone around, and we will give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for watching our message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact our office at 850-926-1200, or email us at info at We also want to encourage you to visit us today, Sunday mornings at 1030 or Wednesdays at 730. Please visit us at ROLConferGo.com for more information.